Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце... Hello and welcome to the SRP Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. The Allies organized the Nuremberg trials to hold the Nazis accountable for their crimes and to restore a sense of justice to a world devastated by violence. But a major piece of the Nuremberg story has often been left out, the Soviet Union's pivotal role in making the trials happen in the first place. Indeed, Soviet jurists developed the legal framework that treated aggressive war as an international crime, giving the trials a legal basis. The Soviets' war effort and the cost they endured gave them moral authority. However, in the end, little went as the Soviets had planned, and Stalin's efforts to steer the trials from afar backfired. So, what was the Soviet contribution to the Nuremberg trials, and how did they win the war but lose the peace? Here's Francine Hirsch with some answers. Francine Hirsch is the Villas Distinguished Achievement Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's the author of Empire of Nations, Ethnographic Knowledge in the Making of the Soviet Union. And her new book is Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg, A New History of the International Military Tribunal After World War II, published by Oxford University Press. Here's Francine Hirsch. So um, just to start our conversation about your, your fascinating new book, Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg, A New History of the International Military Tribunal After World War II, uh, just introduce yourself. So, so hi, thanks for having me. So right, I'm, I'm Fran Hirsch. I, um, I'm a his, professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I teach classes on Soviet history, modern European history, the history of human rights, and also the history of Russian-American relations. My first book, Empire of Nations, published in 2005, looked at the role of ethnographers and other experts in the making of the Soviet Union. So how did you get from there to here, like in a sense of that topic to this topic? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think that sometimes when you're doing research, there's a lot of serendipity involved. And when I was doing research for my first book for Empire of Nations, I was looking a lot at depictions of the peoples of the Soviet Union. And I came across the filmmaker Roman Carmen, who had done a bunch of documentaries of the peoples of the USSR. And so I started looking at his films and I and I kind of took note that he had made this documentary of the Nuremberg trials, which I thought was really interesting. Um, at the same time, when I was working on the book, I was looking at these you know, experts who are writing about questions of national and questions of race. And one of those experts um, was named Aron Trainin. 
And I learned too that Aaron Trainin, like he wrote about race and genocide and all kinds of interesting things, and that he too had been at the Nuremberg trials. And so I thought, like, wow, like these two people who are super interesting had both been at the Nuremberg trials. Like, did they know each other? Like, what would that have been like for them? Like, what would that moment have looked like? And so I became really curious about that. And at that point, I just started reading more about Nuremberg. And, and I admit that I didn't myself didn't really know very much about the role that the Soviets had played in the trials. And the more I started digging into it, the more it like, became really interesting. And then I went to Moscow um, in 2005 to start digging around and seeing if this was something I wanted to to reach to research further and just found some amazing documents and then that's that's kind of how I got here. That's an int- that is an interesting connection that those two figures would end up in this, you know, world historical event. So I wanted to ask you about the title because uh, there's a couple of things that uh, stand out. First is, you know, the title again is Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg, A New History of the International Military Tribunal After World War II. And there's two things that I'd like you to kind of peel apart in the title. The first is, of course, Soviet Judgment, you know, what, what that means. And then A New History, um, because I'm sure, and I've seen, you know, looking at your footnotes, there's been a lot written on the Nuremberg trial. So what is, what is talk about the title and its significance. So most books about the Nuremberg trials, um, and as you know, as you mentioned, there's like a huge literature on this. And um, most books, and especially most popular books, they they really leave out the Soviet Union, or they downplay the role of the Soviet Union. Or there were some books and articles, um, like David Irving's Nuremberg book, that um, talks a little bit about the Soviet Union, right? But it's in the in the sense of trying to delegitimize the trials. And so there's not a lot that really gives the full story of the role that the Soviets had. And so um, when I started working on this project, I, I discovered that many people I spoke with, um, you know, inside of academia as well as outside of academia, right, didn't realize that the Soviets, you know, had been one of the four countries of the prosecution, um, let alone that they had been a driving force behind making the trials happen in the first place, or that they had had a very significant role in shaping the legal framework of the trials as well. And so um, a key aim of the book is to bring the Soviets fully into the picture, and, and then in bringing the Soviets into the picture and in using the Soviet archives, and this is really important as well, um, using the, the materials from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Party Archive, Government Archive, from the Academy of Sciences, um, Literature Archive, right? So so it, it enables me to tell a, a fuller and, and more nuanced story of the trials as a whole. And, and especially then looking at those materials against the narrative that's been told and then against some of the materials in the U.S. archives and some British materials, right, and, and some, some French materials as well, just to get a, a sense of, um, of how, how these different players, like how they were interacting and not just what the Americans might have thought of the Soviets, which is what we hear of a little bit, but what the Soviets thought of everyone as well. And, and all of the misunderstandings and miscommunications really come out through that fuller picture. And so, so that's why it's a, it's a new history, because when you have a story that's been told a particular way with a significant part of it missing, like you don't have the full picture.
picture. So the, the title part, um, the, the Soviet judgment, um, so that's a riff on the, the famous 1961 film directed by Stanley Kramer, Judgment at Nuremberg. And this film was based on um, one of the 12 later Nuremberg trials, like the judge's trial of 47, which was held exclusively um, by the United States. And I think that's one of the reasons that many people tend to associate Nuremberg right, with the Americans, you know, just one of the reasons. Um, so that's part of the Soviet judgment. But um, I think also, like, by the end of the book, um, I really came to see this idea of Soviet judgment in all sorts of ways. And, and then I was, as I was thinking about the conclusions and just pulling things together, um, that idea of Soviet judgment became something I was playing with a lot. Because on, first, it's, of course, it's about the Soviet judgment of the Nazi war criminals, right? The, that their judgment as one of the four countries. But it's also um, about Moscow's judgment. Stalin's judgment of how the trials are going along, Stalin's judgment of what the Soviet delegation is getting right, of what the Soviet delegation is getting wrong, and, and just um, the passing of judgment during the trials and then afterwards on how the Soviets did, right, that's coming from Moscow. And then the, the last part that, um, that I, I'm super interested in, right, and that to me is kind of where like, the, the, the nitty, like the meaty stuff is in some ways, it's just, it's also um, these stories that come through the, the material, the archival materials, where you just see this really bad judgment that the Soviets are exhibiting at various moments. There are times when, you know, this, I just want to emphasize, like, the Soviets sent amazingly talented people to Nuremberg, like talented lawyers, talented artists, talented writers, along with, like, show trial folks. And we can talk about that later, too. Um, and and during the course of the trials, the process, the Soviet prosecutors and judges and Soviet leaders who are overseeing them back in Moscow through these secret commissions and these secret channels, right? They're making all kinds of decisions that serve the Soviets really badly in the end. And, you know, the one that, um, that, that always just like gets me is, you know, they send the Soviet chief prosecutor to Nuremberg without telling him about the secret protocols to the Hitler-Stalin Pact of August 1939. <laughs> I said, right. right. I mean, that's kind of... <laughs> right. You know, that's... I, I, so I have kind of bad judgment. It's also a symptom of Stalinism, right, which is another big theme for me of the book, of, of how Stalinism then plays out on the international stage. Well, let's get in some of those uh, those major issues. Um, the first is I wanted to ask you about what you call in the introduction the myth of the Nuremberg moment, um, which which a lot of your book is reacting to. So, what is the 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 myth of the Nuremberg moment? So, in part, that's a little bit of this popular story of Nuremberg that I, I sort of mentioned. So, the myth of the Nuremberg moment, it's a great story, right? It's this uplifting story. It's a story about the Nuremberg trials that we get in popular books and that we get in popular films about the trials. It's this myth about Nuremberg being wholly grounded on, in like liberal ideas about justice and the law, like this really high road to justice. Right. It celebrates Nuremberg as this triumph of Western leadership and idealism. Um, and in the most popular version of this, 
the U.S. Chief Prosecutor, Robert H. Jackson, Supreme Court Justice, he's leading the way, you know, putting the desire for vengeance aside to give the Nazis a fair trial and really like, ushering in this new era of international human rights. And, you know, there's this docudrama on Nuremberg that really plays this up with Alec Baldwin, you know, as Jackson. Now, the, again, it's a great myth, but it leaves out a lot. There's no room in that for Stalin's Soviet Union and for the complicated role that it played in the trials. And, and beyond that, I think there's just also not enough room for the nitty gritty politics and the compromises that made Nuremberg happen, right? That like kept the trials moving along, that enabled, you know, those negotiations, those compromises, like they're not always pretty, but they that's what kept things going. And that's what ultimately made the trials possible and ultimately shaped the, the post-war movement for human rights. And, um, and I think that those nitty gritty politics, like the messiness, the contradictions, right? I think that all of that is really critical to understanding what happened in Nuremberg and why, like the successes there, as well as the failures. Um, and, and so, and I'll just say too that, you know, I began working on this book when the trials of Slobodan Milosevic and Saddam Hussein, when they were all over the news, right? And, you know, reading just the newspapers, people are talking about, you know, like, the the Nuremberg standard, like the, the Nuremberg moment and holding it up as this ideal type and, you know, in holding it up, just also just like missing like what Nuremberg was really about. And I think that, you know, if we're going to use Nuremberg as a comparison, if we're going to hold it up as something to learn from, perhaps, maybe instead of just idealizing it, then, then we need the full picture. Like we need like warts and all, like we really need the full picture. Well, I have to say, you know, I, I'm a, I don't know, victim is the right word, but certainly someone who uh, saw the trial through this, what you call this Nuremberg myth, because I, I was not, you know, before reading your book, knew nothing about the Soviet contribution. And, and whatever I did know, I, I too thought it was a, you know, a negative contribution. But then, you know, also learning that actually it was the Soviets that pushed for the trial and, and that there was a lot of reluctance from the American and British side. So where did the idea for an international military tribunal come from? So the, in the middle of the war, right, you know, in the darkest days of the war, right, Stalin and Molotov um, began imagining what was later called by them a special international tribunal, the convening of some kind of tribunal to try Nazi war criminals. And they were envisioning this um, really in large part initially as a way of establishing a legal claim for reparations, right? This is the time the Soviet Union is being like destroyed by the war. And so Molotov and Stalin, they direct deputy foreign minister, Andrei Vyshinsky, you know, the same Vyshinsky who had prosecuted the infamous Moscow trials just a few years earlier, they direct him to research the question of um, criminal responsibility for crimes carried out during the waging of an aggressive war. And Vyshinsky, right, who had these ties with the Institute of State and Law at the Academy of Sciences, um, he turns to a group of, inter because he himself had had an important role there, I should mention, um, that he turns to a group of international law experts there and asks them to take up this question. And one of those lawyers um, is Aaron Trainin. Um, so Trainin writes a report that's 
um, for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and later published as a book, The Criminal Responsibility of the Hitlerites. And so the Soviets then are, are thinking about some kind of a tribunal early on for that reason. And then it's in October 1942 that the Soviets broadcast a statement calling out the criminal responsibility of, of the Hitlerites for atrocities in occupied Europe. And this statement demands that Hitler... Goering, Hess, Ribbentrop, and other Nazi leaders, that they be you know, brought before, again, a special international tribunal and punished with all the severity of criminal law. And it calls for, they, the statement calls for the cooperation then of all interested governments in capturing, trying, and sentencing Nazi leaders and insisting, and this is a really interesting piece, I think, too, that, um, that those Nazi leaders already in all, allied hands, and here, of course, we're talking about Rudolf Hess, who was in British custody, and the Soviets are furious about, like, like, what's he doing there? Like, what's going on? That Hess, that he'd be brought to justice without further delay as well, because, like, you know, what is Hess doing there? Like, why aren't they doing So there's all kinds of questions around that. So, you know, but yeah, as, as you mentioned, it takes a while for the Americans and the British to come on board with this. It takes a while um, for the details of this to be worked out, for it to be decided that this should be a, a military tribunal. The Americans are concerned about reprisals against allied prisoners of war, because remember, the war is still going on when the Soviets are talking about this. It's it, like things are happening. And British leaders, um, they're arguing now that the crimes of Hitler and Hess, like that, like they're too great to be dealt with by a court, by a judicial procedure, that they should be hanged or shot upon capture. Um, they just couldn't understand the point of holding a trial. And I think here, like the important thing is that the Soviets, they're talking about an international tribunal, a special international tribunal, about that being important instead of an executive decree, right, or like ordering the hanging of war criminals. But it's clear to them that these war criminals will be like, you know, there'll be hangings or shoot, you know, or they'll be shot afterwards because the Soviets, they, they take Nazi guilt as a given, like an absolute given. And they can't conceive of a trial in which the defendants will do anything other than confess their crimes and then just get sent off for swift execution. So, so you know, everyone's coming at this from with these very different ideas. And again, the fact that, you know, Vyshinsky is involved from the start in all of this, like that's very significant. I wanted to talk about, like, focus in on one point, and that is, you know, from the, you know, because the presence of Vyshinsky, of course, is reference to the Moscow show trials and and the importance of the trial as a performance, as a public, you know, um, educative, uh, you know, model in the Soviet system. So did Stalin and people around him see, you know, because like you, like you rightly said, no, they didn't, they had, you know, no question about the Nazis' guilt. They just wanted a process and because they're, because they saw meaning in that process. So what was the meaning that they, besides the giving the legal justification for reparations, what are some of the other meanings that they saw in having essentially a show trial? So, right. So, the, so, I mean, first of all, it's important to just step back and to, to like, again, like have like a picture of what the Soviet Union looks like at this moment in the middle of the war and then at the end of the war. By the end of the war, I think the number is something like 27 million Soviet people dead. 
just the devastation that has been done to the Soviet Union, um, to, you know, every single aspect of it. Um, people are in shock still. People are in mourning. The atrocities that have been committed on Soviet trial are just, it's, it's hard to talk about even. And so, so some of this is about collective catharsis. Some of this is about just coming to terms with what's happened, about putting a, a, a story about shaping the, the collective memory. Some of it is about initially about reparations, um, but things happen with that along the way as well. And some of it for the Soviets, it's also it's 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 for the Soviet people, but it's also in terms of something to show the rest of the world. So a trial to make clear to the rest of the world exactly like what has happened to the Soviet people, what has happened to the Soviet Union, like these atrocities that had been committed, right? To, to, to show all that, to, to tell about all of that, to bring the Nazi leaders to justice in this kind of a way. And for the Soviets also throughout, they also see this as a moment of taking their place on the international stage, taking their place at the table of the victors, that it's going to have symbolic value in, in all of these ways. So, so that's, um, that's part of how they're envisioning it. And, and they think it's going to be quick. They really do. Like they think a few weeks, you know, maybe a month. So it's just, it's performative, but it's performative about something very real and something that they understand is going to have a lot of emotional resonance as well. And 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 also, you know, early when they when they begin moving in this direction, you know, you have training, of course, putting forward the kind of the the legal foundations for aggressive war, but then you have this massive apparatus of committees that are collecting evidence on the ground of atrocities. They're also not just atrocities against, you know, Soviet civilians as such, but also particularly against Jews. Um, and, and so they are, they, they, you know, it's, it's not, it's not fair just to, to, as, as I said, to call it just a show trial. There's a, as you said, there's a lot real and important that is going on as part of this, this creation of this cathartic moment. Right. And the thing is, like, it never is a show trial. And it's really important to emphasize that. It never is a show trial. This is in part because of all these judicial systems coming together and the balancing that goes on uh, um, among the different countries of the prosecution, I would never call the Nuremberg trials a show trial. I would, not, especially not in the sense that we tend to think of it, like those of us who studied the Soviet Union. I would say that it always had educational, an educational purpose, a didactic purpose. When we think of Soviet show trials, it's, it's, it's not just about that. Um, but for the Soviets, when they're thinking of it, initially in terms of what it's going to look like, they have in mind certain elements of how show trials, political trials were conducted in the Soviet Union in the sense that they don't think that the defendants are going to be taking the stand in their own defense and calling defense witnesses. They don't think that the judges are, are going to really be deliberating. I mean, for them, it's like, what's there to deliberate about, right? It's clear. Um, they are imagining even like something like a scripted confession, right? Cross-examination, like, what, how could there be cross, right? So all of those things 
are just outside. So it's not even as if like Moscow, they're having these discussions in Moscow, well, there will be no cross-examination. No, it's not even within their realm of imagination that it could look like that. Now, what about the other allied powers? How did they, what do they want out of this once they come on board with the idea? So, um, so they, they, so everyone involved, so all four powers, the United States, Britain, France, which is kind of brought in towards the last minute, and the Soviet Union, right? They, they all want to use the trials to bring the Nazis to justice, to buoy their international influence, and to shape the narrative of the war, right? They, they all want to do that. Um, you know, the United States, which has emerged from the war relatively unscathed, you know, compared with the other allied powers, it's really poised at that moment to take on a much more involved world, a role in, um, in world affairs. And, you know, Jackson, the U.S. chief prosecutor and President Truman, they share a goal and they talk about it. And Jackson talks about it in letters to Truman of using Nuremberg um, to model like what they see as American values, including adherence to the rule of law. So, um, so, so again, it, it's all of these things. And the Americans and the Soviets, in part because of this, as you might imagine, right, are really on a, a crash course from the start in terms of like what they're thinking is going to happen and how things should play out. Um, I want to also mention that in terms of what everyone wants to get out of the trials, right, that the, the four allies, they also have really different ideas about which crime should be emphasized the most. There's three main charges in the Nuremberg Charter, um, crimes against peace. That's the this phrase, crimes against peace. That's, um, tri that's what Trainin had coined, right? Um, it's, it's basically the preparing and waging of aggressive war. Um, war crimes. Um, and crimes against humanity. Uh, the Americans and the Soviets, they see the, the charge of crimes against peace, the planning and waging of aggressive war as the crux of the case. For the French, the most important charge is crimes against humanity, like clearly, like including the crimes of plunder and enslavement. And the French judge later will be very, very active in trying to take this term and, and bring it into international law um, kind of more um, consistently. The British, um, they sort of see crimes against peace and crimes against humanity as equally important, but are also like very invested in prosecuting certain war crimes, like crimes at sea. And for the Soviets and the French, too, um, another primary point of concern was the criminal responsibility of the German industrialists who had bankrolled the Nazis. And this will become, um, everyone's on board with this initially. Um, the Americans and the British, they initially expressed support for this, but, but they lose their enthusiasm for doing so as it becomes like all the more important to the Soviets. So, so I, everyone wants to, to shape the narrative of the war. Everyone wants to shape the future of of international relations. I should say, maybe in in one way or another, like using this trial to exert their their influence. But um, but the emphases are are all different. Yeah, it, it also seems to me that they're already. I mean, I mean, you can say if they're they're actually really conscious this conscious of this or not, but it seems to me that they're they're also really trying to shape the memory of the war, right? To to shape. What each of their both the the their victimhood, but also their their victory, and who who has who you know, and you, we can see this today in all the discussions of World War II. This still hasn't been really settled, but who gets to stand up and say we defeated the Nazis, right? Um, what was that also? Can you know is that a a main concern going on as well? 
It's just huge. No, and, and I know that reading some of the, the recent things, um, right, with the, uh, Putin's recent speech, for example, about the Second World War or his the, the big article that he – right, all this, super interesting. Um, and it's super interesting, again, to see on the Russia side that certain things that had been acknowledged then being sort of like, well, no, maybe not. Um, but But this was – Absolutely, absolutely critical from the start. Um, I would say that that really, you know, whether whether people realize this before going into the trials, the different players, once they started to work on the indictment, um, the, you know, the list of charges against the Nazis, um, at that point, the struggle to to shape like the narrative or the collective memory maybe of the war um, and the causes of the war, it is, it is absolutely critical. So the indictment, it's this massive document. It's just, it's, you know, the size of a small novel. And it lays out the crimes against the former Nazi leaders and their organizations. But it's not just that. It's a little history book because it tells the whole history of the lead up to the war and the war itself. And in the writing of this indictment among the, the representatives from the Allies, there's a lot of back and forth about, well, you know, how do you describe the, the Munich Pact of September 1938? You know, appeasement. Why, why, what do you want to, you know, British, Britain and France, right? They sign on with Nazi Germany and Italy. But, you know, how do you want to talk about that? How are they going to talk about you know, the, the Hitler-Stalin Pact, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of August 1939. Um, and there's a lot of concern about those agreements being depicted as springboards for the Nazi takeover of Europe. And that's not even talking about the secret protocols. This is just even talking about, you know, appeasement and non-aggression. Like, how do you talk about those things? How do you talk about um, the different the moments in the war and and who did what and um and who suffered like whose suffering gets emphasized and like whose heroism gets emphasized and and what should get left out so so there's all kinds of um discussion and debate about the indictment act that gets very very contentious and it's at that point that that katin the katin massacre which was um a crime that the soviets had committed that they want to blame on the nazis the soviets managed to kind of sneak that into the indictment act although everyone else they contested but they they let it in okay so so that happens at that moment too and then you know before the trials get started the chief prosecutors, uh, the, the four chief prosecutors and their deputies, right, they reach what the Soviets describe in the Soviet documents as a gentleman's agreement. They actually use that term, which I found really striking. And um, and they talk about this gentleman's agreement, um, and they say that Jackson had proposed it, actually, um, where they're going to agree to keep the trials um focus on access crimes and to shut down defense attempts to publicize the war crimes committed by the allies. And so in this gentleman's agreement, then there's also like a discussion about like lists are circulated or in some cases just talked about, or are there certain things we should know about before we start the trial that maybe we don't want to talk about? Um, but the thing is, is that this is among the prosecutors, not among the governments. It's among the prosecutors, but not among the judges. And what the Soviets don't understand going in is that the Western judges weren't on board with this at all. And, you know, again, we have to remember, right, the Soviets 
are expecting like open and shut cases. They don't even understand the role that the judges are going to play in this trial at all. And um, and once and it seems oh, like sorry, go ahead, yeah, and it and it and it and it seems like they also understand like well you know in our case everybody on our side is on board right we're on the same kind of on the same page and they don't understand and they assume that on the on the american side just as an example that well of course all of their people are going to be on the same page so why would we even conceptualize an idea that the judges would have an independent idea from the american prosecutor from the you know what i mean um i would imagine that's the case as well yeah i mean it starts to fall apart pretty quickly. And there's a lot of pushback from the Americans and the British um, early on with this as well. Like there's a little, there's all these little interesting tidbits that um, Nikachenko, Yona Nikachenko, um, had been sent initially to to London to negotiate with Aaron Chayinen to negotiate the London Agreement and the Charter. And it was assumed um, but not never stated overtly, but it was sort of assumed that the people who are doing this would be the members of the prosecution um, because they're putting together um, the case. And then and then and every the Soviets sort of this is it's not clear, right, that um, when Nikachenko goes back to Moscow for a little bit, he basically says he'll come back soon with some assistance. And it's really assumed that he's going to be the prosecutor. And then Stalin does a little switch with Nikachenko's going to be the judge now. And Roman Rudenko is going to be the prosecutor. And, you know, the Americans are just like, what is this? That how can he be the judge? The judge is supposed to be a neutral party. But, but yeah, as you've said, you know, the Soviet prosecutor and judge, like they're all taking orders from Vyshinsky, who's taking orders from Stalin. So it's a, it's a very different um, conception they have of, of how things are going to be working. So as you said, I mean, it really is uh, about, you know, the, all these various parties trying to control the narrative of the trial once it gets started. I mean, even before, but once it gets started, it becomes more haphazard. And another, um, you know, agent in that narrative control or narrative shaping are the defendants themselves. So talk about the efforts between, you know, outline the, the, the efforts to control the narrative amongst the various allies, but also, you know, the defendants given their chance. Once the defense case gets started, it's really just like all bets are off. And, you know, for the Soviets, this comes, I'll just mention that the the prosecutors present their case like, you know, one at a time and the Soviets go last and the Soviets have really done a great job in presenting their case. Like just even with all of the ways in which they do fumble at various points in time, the Soviet case was incredibly well done very well presented, incredibly powerful witnesses. They left just quite an impression. And then, you know, a couple of days later, <laughs> the defense case starts. And, you know, you have Gehring is up first and Gehring's witnesses and then Gehring himself. And, um, and the judges just let the defendants, um, who are, again, much to the surprise of the Soviets, allowed to take the stand themselves, right, in their own defense, lets them go on for days days, like weeks at a time in some cases, disputing allied charges, disputing allied evidence, and making counter accusations, right? Making counter charges, doing what they can to mention 
the war crimes of um, of all the countries of the prosecution. And this, this, I mean, there was some concern that ahead of time about trying to frame the trials in such a way or the charges in such a way. So like what would happen if something like this were to happen, right, among the prosecutors? And the Americans um, were, were a, a kind of a little bit nervous about this. But the Soviets kept saying, no, 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 there's not going to be a problem. The judges will shut things down should there be any trouble at all, right? And um, yeah, and the Western judges, um, who are very sensitive to criticisms of Nuremberg as Victor's justice, they really give the defendants free reign. And Nikachenko, who of course is talking orders from taking orders from Moscow and who is horrified about all this going on, he um, is outvoted by the judges, you know, every every single time. When I started working on this at the beginning, I, I thought the defense case would be like one or two chapters. I had I had no idea of like how much happened during the defense case, of how much evidence was and counter evidence was presented during the defense case. Um, so yeah, I, I found it to be that part of the story to be really interesting in, in ways that, that I hadn't expected. And, um, and the other thing that happens in the defense case that I found really interesting too, is over the whole course of the trials, um, this language of human rights, right? Or we, what we now think of as this language of human rights kind of comes up. People talk about human rights. People talk about humanity. People talk about, uh, again, the, the charges in this, in, in these, using these, this kind of language, right? The, the term genocide gets brought in towards the end. And, um, and it's not just the countries of the prosecution that are using this. The defendants pick up on this language as well, like talking about, yeah, how collective guilt is like an abuse of human rights of the German people. And so this language is gets becomes used in all of these interesting and contested ways in the middle of it. Let's talk about one of these these like uh, pivotal moments in the trial where the narrative, the struggle for controlling the narrative, comes to a head, and that and that is what you label the Katyn showdown. Uh, what what's what was this, and what what's the significance, and and what significance did the Katyn massacre play in the Nuremberg trial? This was, um, I would say, a very important moment in the trial. Um, so the Soviets, so, so the Katyn massacre, the the massacre of. Um, of you know, thousands of um, Polish officers, um, prisoners of war, right? A terrible atrocity. It was, um, of course, committed by the Soviets. We now know that decisively, although there's still denials of it at times. And um, and the Soviets who, it had been kind of tossed back and forth with the, the Soviets and the Nazis blaming each other for it. And the war is over. And so the Soviets, you know, they initially they were thinking of doing a kind of show trial of their own, actually, around this. And then they Someone gets the bright idea that um, that like why bother like the Nuremberg you know just let's just include it and um, so they decide to in try to include it in the indictment as a Nazi crime so they in they kind of slip it in as a Nazi war crime the Western prosecutors um, have some reservations about this they suspect quite rightly that the the Soviets um, 
had committed the atrocity or that it wasn't clear. And it wasn't so unclear that including this would raise questions. So like, why bother? Why take the chance? But, you know, Roman Rodenko, who's Soviet chief prosecutor, he basically says, well, we have to include this or I'm going to have to go back to Moscow. It's going to take a few weeks like this. is, And so they give in and they, they just they let it go into the indictment and it goes forward. And so the Soviets submit reports, um, the evidentiary reports of fabricated evidence um, that and these reports were produced by their own war crimes commissions. Like one of them is called the Burdenko Commission. There's also reports from the Extraordinary State Commission. So implicating German forces and dating the crime to the, the fall of 1941 when the Germans were in the region. And, um, and the Soviets think this is it, it's done. That these reports were not, will not be challenged. Article 21 of the Nuremberg Charter had stipulated that the reports of national war crimes commissions would automatically be accepted as evidence. And so it didn't dawn on the Soviets that the defense could be allowed to call this evidence into question, right? They thought once evidence was in, it's in. And um, the, so the Western judges um, overruling Nikachenko, again, they rule otherwise. The judges allow the defense to call three witnesses explicitly, separate witnesses at the end of the trials in July when almost everything else is wrapped up except the organization's case. So to dispute the Soviet charges and then um, as sort of a compromise, actually, and in part that as a result of some pressure from the other Western prosecutors, they, um, they allow the Soviets to call. Um, another three witnesses of their own to support Soviet claims. So the showdown itself happens right over two days in July of 1946, and um, and it's pretty inconclusive. If you read the newspaper coverage of it, the newspapers, um, British papers, American papers, they kind of suggest it was sort of a draw. But for the Soviets, this is really a loss because. The Soviets aren't the ones who are on trial here, right? Um, in the end, the, the charge quietly disappears. Um, it's not in the sense that it's not mentioned in the judgment. And you know, this moment, um, I would say for, for many um, observers there, it's a little anticlimactic, right? There's all this buildup about it, and then like, okay. But for some members of the Soviet delegation, this whole moment is is really eye-opening there there's some great memoirs and um one memoir was written later by a soviet translator um tatiana stupnikova and she writes that like this moment like made her and the other translators like, question everything they had been told about the war and so you know in in general like i have these are the kind of moments that um i think it's important for the course of the trial right in the sense that it is one of those moments where the the legitimacy of the whole process is in question and you know i think maybe the process is saved by allowing this and the soviets come out not looking very good but the other thing that really interests me about this i'm really interested in this question of like who knew what when right you know like eventually they tell rudenko about the secret protocol he's sent back to moscow in the middle of the trial and educated about that the informants tell salon that this really has to happen um and you know and but like who knew about katine right so you know aaron trainen knew he was on a commission that knew so he's one of the people that knows there are some members of the soviet prosecution who know um who are also on these commissions to talk about it but like i i don't know like like yuri prokoski who presents the evidence 
I, I still like, did he fully know? Was he left in the dark? Like how much did he know? So I, again, then when it all, you know, I just kind of think about this moment in the courtroom um, and again, like who has what information and how are, how are they receiving what they've been told? Um, I think to, to me, to me, that's what adds to the drama of the moment as well. Well, you know, another thing that adds to the drama is actually, and, and one of the things I really liked about your book, uh, in addition to all the rest, is the drama that takes place outside the courtroom. Because not only are you talking about what's in the courtroom, what's going on in respective governments, you also are looking at the after hours. Um, talk about the significance of these after hours socializing, where some, there's some pretty scandalous stuff going on, as you would imagine, uh, uh, between all of these like delegates and diplomats and journalists in, in Nuremberg. Yeah, I, I just honestly like that. I, I, I love that stuff. Like that, you know, I mean, I understand like the law story is important. The international relations stories is important. But like that, that was the story that I, the book I wanted to write about just like the social life. And the, it's like kind of like a social history in a way of like the ins and outs and, and what's going on and how people are experiencing things. And, um, and I think, you know, one of the points I try to make is that like the socializing is just super interesting in and of itself. Like I love seeing like photographs of the Soviets at a soccer match and hearing, reading these letters where they describe like these vaudeville performances and these German singers singing American tunes in the Grand Hotel and all of the alcohol that's consumed. Super interesting. Um, but it also plays a role. Like it plays a role in in forging alliances among the members of different countries, breaking down barriers at key times during the negotiations. It helps to, you know, lubricate the proceedings. Um, and, and sometimes this works for the Soviets and sometimes it works against them. I, you know, there's, there's just some great descriptions in um, Robert Jackson's diaries and letters about some of the socializing that happens in London in the summer of 1945 before the Soviet representatives arrive. Like the Soviets, I mean, I'm sorry, the British and the Americans and the French, like there's, you know, there's dinners at Claridge's, dog races, trips to Hyde Park. And, you know, the Soviets show up a few days late because they're late with all of this for all kinds of reasons. Um, you get a sense from the Soviet materials of how behind they are and how just how awkward everything feels at that moment. And you kind of realize, well, well, yeah, everyone else has been like out drinking together for the past three days and you haven't even met them yet. So that's some of it. And then, you know, in Nuremberg, um, the after hours parties, they also sometimes help to move things along um, in ways that the Soviets wanted. Um, and, you know, Andrei Bashinsky, um, you know, the, who's heading this secret commission back in Moscow, and no one's supposed to know that he is heading this secret commission that's directing the Nuremberg trials, except for the members of the Soviet delegation. Anyway, he shows up in November for a few days because the Soviets are worried that things are not going according to plan. And, um, and he gives, there's a whole bunch of secret meetings he has with Rudenko and Nikachenko and gives them all kinds of directives about getting the Americans and the British and the French on board with making sure that everyone's in agreement to, to see each other's speeches ahead of time. And then it's, it's as a result of some of these, you know, drunken parties that they're after one of the parties, Rudenko writes home and says, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's going to be fine. Like we worked it out. 
Um, so I, I love that, right? Because it's again, it's 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 the human side of it. It's um, you know, who knows if it's really be, that really happened? You know, Rudenko thought it happened because of right all of this, but you know, who knows really? But but just again, like you can imagine it. Like I can imagine those scenes where you want to get something done. It's not going to really happen during the official meeting if it's a sensitive thing. You kind of warm up to it you know, while you're sharing some, well, whatever it is they're drinking at that particular party. So. Well, yeah. And then there's also, you know, there's also elements of, you know, all of these are, it, you know, all of them of the important players are men. They're in a, uh, a immediate post-war city. There's entertainment. They, you know, they're, they're kind of all bonding. There's masculinity, there's drinking, there's, you know, whoring, I would imagine. Uh, so, you know, all of these are, you know, we when we when we think about diplomatic relations, we we tend to not emphasize how important these, you know, bonding moments are between men, which of course in in everyday life we're very aware of, right? Like you hear about this in terms of business, in terms of golfing and strip clubs. I mean, this is a similar kind of situation. <laughs> No, that's really, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Right, and, you know, and there's, there is, there's that men's world, but, you know, there, there also is the women's world. You know, there, so there's some, some of the journalists uh, from other countries are women, right? The Soviets are, are like almost holy men. But then, um, you know, in terms of many of the Soviet translators and interpreters and stenographers and typists are women. And, and they're involved like in this other kind of scene of shopping on the black market. You know, so so that's right, and that's what gets written home about as as well. And talk a bit about their experience of the the women that are part of this process, and and what it looks like from their vantage point in terms of you know their time in this. Yeah, there's not. It's interesting. I mean, there's not as much on it in part because all the informants are men on the Soviet side, and the really juicy descriptions of what's going on are in these letters from informants. But we get pictures of it. We get snippets of it. We get snippets of it. Again, this talk of the the women who are going out and shopping on the black market. We get snippets too. Um, And and again, like some, it's reading these documents is really interesting because, you know, you always have to ask like how much of this is true? Like, like, like why is this being written this way? But there's this one report that I, it just broke my heart of, um, someone one of the informants writing back and talking about how the women of the soviet delegation have such terrible clothing and dress like so badly compared to the other members of the you know to, to the westerners that the british and the american are making fun of them and how something needs to be done about them. so i mean just like oh right um just yeah so that there's that and um, and again, like one of the best, um, so one of the really amazing accounts of the trial is the trial of this particular uh, translator again, Stupnikova. And I wouldn't say like she she's not presenting like a women's perspective, but she is presenting again like a perspective of from the translators, um, you know, many of whom were women. But the way that she tells the story is how um, again just how shocked she and others are. Um, but by every, by everything that they're hearing in the courtroom about the atrocities, of course, and this and that, but also then when they when there's talk of the secret protocols, when there's talk of Katyn, um, there's just uh, like I think a very strong sense that the translators are hearing this for the first time. 
Um, in the introduction, uh, you write that, uh, and and I have to say, like, also hearing hearing you talk about this, it it seems to me that the Soviets were were quite naive in many respects coming into this. And, and you write that the Soviet Union had won the war at Nuremberg; it lost the victory. So, what what do you mean by that? So, I mean, again, I think just like putting into perspective, like what things look like from the so like from the Soviet perspective, right at the start of the trial. Again, like twenty seven million dead unimaginable destruction and devastation. Right? This was an extremely hard-won victory. And, you know, the Soviets are the one, they were the ones who, like, were out in front pushing for an international tribunal. They wanted to tell their story on the international stage. They wanted the world to understand what they had suffered. You know, and in many ways, right, they succeeded, right, especially with the Soviet witness testimony. But the Soviets, they also wanted the world to see the Red Army as the liberators of Europe. And here they were much less successful. You know, so I think it's just so interesting that it's a Soviet jurist, Aaron Trainen, who coins the phrase crimes against peace, which becomes one of the main counts in the indictments then too. It's the Soviets who had pushed very hard to have like the planning and waging of aggressive war to be acknowledged as a punishable international crime. But in the course of the trials, Soviet crimes against peace like first and foremost, like the secret protocols to the Hitler-Stalin pact, they're exposed on the international stage. And again, Katyn is like another moment for them too. And so they, they had expected this to be straightforward. They had expected this to be an opportunity to tell their story, to be heard. You know, there, there's, just, there's these letters that, um, that again, with the informant sending back to, to Moscow about like what's happening. And one of them talks about the fact that he can't believe that this is happening, that Ribbentrop has been like allowed when taking the stand to talk about the details of the secret protocols that, you know, he says like, you know, the Soviets came to the table as victors. Like he uses that expression and like, and then I, I forget what he says after that, but the gist of it is this was not supposed to happen this way. Um, because really like by the end you know, in the courtroom and then especially in terms of the, the wider world, like in the international press and in the coverage of the trials, the Soviets, they're not depicted as the saviors of Europe. I mean, they depict themselves that way, you know, in the countries that they're occupying, but they're depicted as, you know, co-conspirators of the Nazi regime. And that this should end up that way, right? It's just shocking to them. You know, I just want to add too that um, in terms of how Nuremberg backfires on the Soviets, as well, you know, like they, they have their moments of success, especially when they're presenting their case, because it's that moment that they're in charge of their own evidence. They're in charge of telling their story, right? They have that moment to shape the narrative there, right? How they want to. Um, but at those other moments where more spontaneity is needed, where more flexibility is needed, where back and forth and the ability to make decisions without having to wait for Moscow to tell you what you're supposed to decide, in those kinds of moments, they just look like amateurs. Um, I think, and in ways that I think are surprising to the rest of the world too, that um, it's the rest of the world now is getting like a first row seat to the fact that, again, it's, it's not just how they're dressing, but the fact that 
the interpreters are not doing a great job and um and and just this kind of again i mean this, these moments that really do play out like a farce and it's publicly playing out like a farce as well do you think that this is did, does this does this give does this give I mean because you mentioned in when we first started talking today about the you know the issue of Stalinism so is this what you would give like you know here is is the Soviet Union on stage you know in many respects Stalinism is on the world stage and this is the view of what the Stalinist system is yeah I think so I mean as well because it's a view of what the Stalinist system is without it being able to function the same way that it does at home, right? Because the communication lines are so stretched. Um, this kind of centralization, when they have to wait for word back, when the other countries that they're dealing with are not under the same constraints. Like, again, like, you know, sure, Jackson's checking in with Truman, but he does, he's making decisions on his own. And there aren't like five different committees that things have to go through secretly before he can get the word. You know, Nikachenko, he's the judge. He's not supposed to be consulting with Stalin about things. He's not supposed to be smuggling out parts of the judgment before they're presented. Um, but he's doing that, right? And so, so they, they, the Soviets look bad because they're constantly stalling. They're constantly stalling because they need time to get things to go through those channels. And finally, you know, in bringing the Soviet side back into the story, um, what was the Soviet contribution and to the Nuremberg trial and what, what legacy did it leave? First of all, I think in order to understand Nuremberg as a whole, um, we need to understand, again, just going back to thinking about just the trials from the very beginning. So the Soviets have a major role in making Nuremberg happen. I mean, I think, you know, an argument could be made I, I make it in the book, although, again, I don't know how far I want to go with it, but that Nuremberg probably wouldn't have happened had it not been for the Soviets kind of pushing for this international tribunal and also pushing for the recognition of aggressive war as an international crime. Um, and so, so that's really critical as well. Soviet evidence that the Soviets brought in through the Extraordinary State Commission, evidence of atrocities um, committed in the Soviet Union and throughout Eastern Europe was incredibly important as well. But I think too that um, in bringing in the Soviets, it, it shifts the story in a really fundamental way, because we then just get a much clearer picture of what Nuremberg really looked like, of what all the policy, you know, what were the politics involved, and of all the compromises that were made on, on all sides. Um, and I think, too, and, and this is, I think, also really important, we get a picture of Nuremberg just as, a, as an early front of the Cold War and of how that played into the trial as well. And then how the post-war moment um, 
and then and the postwar movement for human rights, how all of this is like intertwined with these Cold War politics too. Like we're also reminded that you know these concepts that we now maybe take for granted, like genocide, you know, aggressive war, crimes against humanity, that these terms they had political origins, right, as well as humanitarian origins. And um, and I think that's it's important again just to like, get that that full full story of things. I it's a it's a more complicated story. Like and sometimes you know I, when I first started working on this project, I gave a very early talk at, um, at the the you know the Russian Art Museum in in Minnesota, and a couple of people in the audience were like a little bit offended actually. They're like, do you do you really wanna? kind of tell this story and kind of mess up the myth of the Nuremberg trials, you know, do you really, I was like, well, well, yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't, I wasn't sure at the time I was thinking about it, but I, but I think, you know, we, we need to have that, that messiness of bringing the Soviets back in gives us, you know, in, in part because like, it just gives us something real to work with. And the other thing I'd like, I, I want to say is in, in, in what, adding them back to the story and, and does is it at least for me one of the things I walk away with is a lot of the issues that we're still debating about who started the war who is responsible for what you know what role did this power play it was all first it seems was first conceptualized at this in this trial right it, in in a way I, while you were talking I was thinking of you know, especially when you're talking about this book, you know, this novella of the, you know, how the war started and stuff that was produced, it really is kind of the first draft of the history of the war in some respects. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And based on so many different primary sources, right? You know, like all, right, exactly. And, and those primary sources, like this evidence that you have to like really kind of like, because again, like the indictment includes evidence. Um, so yeah, no, I, that's, um, I think that's absolutely the case. That was Francine Hirsch, the Villas Distinguished Achievement Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's the author of Empire of Nations, Ethnographic Knowledge in the Making of the Soviet Union. Her new book is Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg, A New History of the International Military Tribunal After World War II published by Oxford University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Train to Nuremberg, last train to Nuremberg, last train to Nuremberg, all on board. Do I see?
Lieutenant Calais? Do I see Captain Medina? Do I see General Coster and all his crew? Do I see President Nixon? Do I see both houses of Congress? Do I see the voters, me and you? Last train to Nuremberg, last train to Nuremberg, last train to Nuremberg, all on board. Last train to Nuremberg, last train to Nuremberg, last train to Nuremberg, all on board. Who held the rifle? Who gave the order? Who planned the campaign to lay waste the land? manufactured the bullet who paid the taxes tell me is this blood upon my hand last train to Nuremberg last train to Nuremberg last train to Nuremberg all on board last train to Nuremberg last train to Nuremberg last train to Nuremberg